Hi, Steve Shepard with you once again. Thanks in advance for taking the time to listen to this particular episode. My way of working through a challenge has always been to write about it. It's how I make sense of complex problems. It's how I create effective training materials. It's how I assemble books. And it's how I produce podcasts. But for the last two weeks, one complex problem has consumed me. The unimaginable, undeserved pain that too many people in this country are living with every single day of their lives. In light of what's happening around the country and around the world in response to the death of George Floyd, I've found myself thinking a lot about who I am, what I stand for, and how I can be part of the change that this country, this good country, so desperately needs right now. The result is what you're about to hear, so thanks for listening. This is important. Let me start with this. A couple of years ago, I was heading home from a long trip. I don't remember where I was, but I'd made it as far as Dulles Airport in Washington, where I was waiting to board my last flight. I still had a few more minutes before they started boarding, so I was just standing there kind of daydreaming. One of my heroes, and I specifically choose that word because he really is a hero, is a man named James Noctway. James is a conflict photographer, and that day, standing there in Washington, I had the serendipitous good fortune to meet him because at one point when I randomly looked around, he was standing right behind me in line. He must have thought I was some kind of a stalker because I looked at him and said, Oh my gosh, you're James Noctway, as I grabbed his hand in gratitude. He was shocked because I don't think conflict photographers are generally recognized in public. Now I should probably clarify what I mean by a conflict photographer. James spends his time in war and conflict zones, but his work isn't limited to photographs of military devastation. He also records the horrible devastation of disease, famine, poverty, and the darkest side of human nature. He shoots exclusively in black and white, and it works. I guarantee that every single person listening to this has seen his work. If you haven't, look him up. By all rights, he probably shouldn't even be with us anymore. He has been tear-gassed, beaten, subjected to deadly sulfuric acid fumes belching from a volcano while he photographed people mining sulfur there every day of their lives, and he's been blown out of a vehicle by an IED. I've known James's work for the better part of a decade. I know his story. I own his massive book of photographs, Inferno. I dedicated one of my own books to him and his work, and I've seen a movie made about him called War Photographer about a dozen times. One of his best friends is CNN's Christiana Manpour. She's in the film. Let me say a little bit about Inferno. It's a big book, coffee table size, but it's not a book that anyone would put on the coffee table in their living room. It's about three inches thick, and it's filled with black and white images that make the title of the book Inferno entirely accurate. The chapter headings are innocuous and make it sound like a collection of travel essays. Romania, Somalia, Bosnia, Rwanda. And it is a travel book, but the destination is the ninth circle of hell. Inferno is James Noctway's photographic record of the evil that humans inflict on each other. The first time I read it, it left me hollow. It left me numb and it left me indescribably angry and sad. And that, of course, was his intent. I take no joy out of photographing the things that I do, he told me during the flight. 
but if I don't show these things to the world, who will? At the end of the book, I found this line. An abundance of means, but a confusion of aims, is the tragedy of our time. Now, he's talking about forced starvation and genocide and human trafficking, the subject matter of his book. The sentence is one of the most powerful and outright damning statements I have ever read. Because what it says is that we have everything we need to fix this problem right now. What we don't have is a single, converged, dedicated plan of action or the political will to actually do it. Right now, protesters are in the streets all over the world. They're not protesting the death of George Floyd. They're protesting the deaths of countless George Floyds. It's not about the death of one man. It's about the fact that it happened at all. The protests that have now spread around the world are different this time. I've been around long enough to remember the 60s, a time when the evening news on television was actually news rather than opinion, and when the United States felt as if it was being ripped apart much as it does today. It was a different time with an unwinnable war raging in Asia and a very different war raging back home. The war in Asia eventually ended. The war at home rages on even today. I was still young, and we were getting ready to move overseas from West Texas, but I still remember what it was like back then. As young as I was, I had this sense that there was a vast tear in the social fabric, a tear that was getting wider, and it made me feel helpless. A month or so before we left for Spain, I learned a lesson that I still hold very, very dear. One weekend, our family hopped in the car and drove over to Monahans to spend the day at the Monahans Sand Dunes State Park. I was 13 in junior high school, and like all the other boys, I took wood shop. In shop class, we built three things. Pen sets for our dads, cutting boards for our moms, and sand surfers for ourselves. Now, sand surfers were like surfboards with no skeg on the bottom and a piece of carpet on top. From the crest of a sand dune, we would slide to the bottom on our surfers, most of us sitting, a few standing, and then trudge back to the top and do it again. I had finished building mine, and I had it with me that day. I couldn't wait to use it. The sand was white hot. A fall, and there were many, burned and took skin. We arrived at the park at mid-morning, and as my brothers and I were gathering our things from the trunk, a group of old baby blue buses pulled into the parking lot and disgorged several hundred people, all black, a field trip and picnic from a church in Odessa, the town next to ours. From babies to the elderly, like us, they were there for a day at the dunes. We all spent all day on the sand. It was fun, but by the time evening came, we were sunburned, exhausted, ready to go home. We went back to our car, which was one of the few vehicles left in the parking lot. Everyone else, including the church buses, had left. But standing in the middle of the parking lot, as if they belonged there, were two black children about six years old. They were totally alone, and they looked scared and tired and thirsty. Their clothes were threadbare, worn, faded, and mismatched, but impeccably neat, and at least at the beginning of the day, clean. My mom immediately took over. She walked over and asked if they had been left behind. They were shy at first, wary, but they nodded silently. Where do you live, she asked. They didn't know. What's the name of the church that you came here with, she asked. 
Calvary Baptist in Odessa, ma'am, the little boy whispered. He pronounced it Odessa and never lifted his eyes to look at her. My mom was great, demonstrating a quality of unqualified compassion that I came to recognize far later in life as part of who she was. Let's call your church and see if we can find your parents. Then we'll give you all a ride home. Ten minutes later, we were on our way, the smaller kids in the back seat while I sat in the middle of the front seat between my parents. My dad had called the church, reached the pastor, told him what had happened. The man was effusively grateful, even offering to drive out to meet us to pick up the kids. Not necessary, my father replied. We'll be glad to drop them off. It was on the way. Following the pastor's directions, we drove to Odessa and wove our way through town to the area where the kids lived, a rundown neighborhood of tar paper shacks, scrubby yards, and overwhelming hopelessness. Even at 13, I felt it. We found their home. Bright light bled from every window. My father and I walked the kids up to the screen door. We knocked, and the door was quickly opened by the kids' parents. The pastor stood just behind them. The mother immediately focused on the kids, dropping to her knees and pulling them into a great, teary hug. The parents hadn't been on the trip, so their apologies tumbled out in a haystack of explanation and regret. The father immediately focused on my father, taking his hand in a warm, heartfelt, two-handed shake that went on for several seconds before he said, Thank you for being a kind gentleman, sir. My father nodded and smiled. They invited us in, and we accepted. I looked around and entered a world that I had never seen before or been aware of the existence of. The place was a chaos of assaulting contrasts. It was small, cozy, spotlessly clean, and warmly lit, yet it smelled of sweat and sewage and recent cooking. Threadbare furniture overwhelmed the tiny family room. Clusters of framed family photographs covered every surface, and every photograph was a sea of smiles. There was no television. Dirty dishes were piled in the sink from dinner, which was filled with cold, slightly soapy dishwater. A dozen large roaches floated in the water, swimming feebly, trying to climb the soap bubbles. I was horrified. I felt violated. I felt that something inside me, something correct and fundamental and proper and rule-driven, had been torn without quarter. This wasn't fair. But I also felt a warmth that emanated from the people gathered in that home. There was a strength in them that I was drawn to, a strength that overwhelmed the small room and the smell and the dying insects. Those things became unimportant in the face of greater things, more important things, existential things. When we left that night, I was different. I had changed at the pace of quantum mechanics. Some of it was the awakening realization of social privilege in an unfairly biased world. Some of it was the discovery and sinful attraction of a previously unknown social darkness. And some of it was a healthy dose of shame and guilt that comes from the disconnect between youth, rationalization, and understanding. I didn't know about white privilege yet, but whether I knew it or not, I was experiencing it. I still carry that guilt, and I hope I never lose it, because the same horrible forces that created my need for it are still very much alive today. When Colin Kaepernick was vilified for taking a knee during the national anthem, voices screamed that he was dishonoring the flag. No, that's backwards. 
He took a knee because the flag dishonored him because of the color of his skin. He took a knee for every non-white face in the country, and he was pilloried for it. Shame on us. When the Black Lives Matter movement began to develop its own momentum, people countered, and I'll admit that I was one of them, saying that all lives matter. And while that's true, at the time, I didn't hear the underlying message. I didn't understand it. All lives do matter. But all lives aren't in constant risk because they happen to be something other than white. And those that are don't deserve it. They never have. When I read the news these days filled with stories about racial conflict that make the COVID tragedy fade into the background and become noise, I can't help but think about that quote from James Noctway and about those kids in Monahans, and about that family in Odessa. That was 42 years ago, and so little has changed. Yesterday, I watched film of a counter-protest in which white men mocked the death of George Floyd, one kneeling on the neck of another in a sign of the worst kind of disrespect, in a sign of extraordinary human ignorance. And as I think about the injustice and grow angry, a different quote that's usually attributed to Edmund Burke pops into my head. All that is required for evil to prevail is for enough good men to do nothing. Well, right now, for the first time in my life, I feel as if enough good people may be doing something. With a collective force of will, by focusing the means on the proper aims, we can end this. But I struggle with a question. What can I do? How can I help? What action can I take that will make a difference? We all struggle with this, with the desire to make a difference at a time when making a difference is the most important thing that any one of us can do because if we continue to do nothing, the evil that keeps this travesty alive will continue to win. So I've reached what I think is at least a partial answer or perhaps the beginning of one. We have to own the fact that a racial divide defines this country, a divide that gives equal voice to ignorance-driven bigotry and that criminalizes skin color. Let me be clear. This divide doesn't merely exist here. It defines the United States. So talking about it and nodding affirmatively with a serious look on our faces because we're aware of it, not enough. Nowhere near enough. I have a friend who was stopped by the police here in Vermont one evening because he committed the unforgivable crime of driving while black. That was all it took for him to be branded a potential problem, a suspicious individual behind the wheel. By definition, then, as a white man in America, I'm part of the problem, whether I see racist behaviors in myself or not. I don't like it. I'm humbled and embarrassed by it, but I accept it. So what else can I, one individual, do? Well, I'm doing it right now in one of the few ways I know how with this podcast. I'm letting my voice be heard. I took the time to think long and hard about my place and my responsibility to it. I'm taking a stand because it's the right thing to do. I am publicly stating what I believe. I am going on record saying that this ends now. I'm only one voice. It's all I have. But I choose to use it as a force for change. If we all speak up, if we all use our voices to take a stand to end this crime against humanity, 
if we choose to act rather than sit by and just let things happen, as we've done for far too long by believing that we're not part of the problem and therefore need do nothing, then we will see change and we will redefine what this country truly stands for. It's an old adage, but it remains true. If you want something different, you must do something different. Hope is not a strategy. Stop hoping and start doing. Take a stand. Let your voice be heard. Vote at all levels. Own this and be part of the solution rather than part of the silence. Don't ask yourself, what can I do? Ask yourself, what should I do? As James Noctway said, an abundance of means, but a confusion of aims is the tragedy of our time. Well, we are the means, and our voices carry the aims. So speak loudly. I leave you with this quote from Frederick Douglass. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are people who want crops without plowing the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the roar of its many waters. The struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, or it may be both, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Thank you for listening. Thank you for acting. Thank you for doing your part. This ends now.